Welcome to Ask an Austrian, a Mises Caucus podcast where we invite Austro libertarians on the podcast to answer your questions about libertarian theory, ethics, or just philosophy and economics. Uh, and today I'm very excited to have uh, Dr. St. Ange on the show. And we have a list of questions for you, and I want to dive right into them. So I'll bring him on right now. How are you doing? Uh, thanks so much for, for coming on. Oh, it looks like you're muted. Two and a half years into the pandemic, and I haven't figured out the internet. It's great to be here, Liam. Thanks. Yeah, well, why don't you just introduce yourself for everyone before we get into the questions? Sure. I'm Peter St. Ange. I'm an economist at the Heritage Foundation. I'm also a fellow at the Mises Institute. Uh, I write about freedom and Bitcoin on uh, Substack. And like many of us, I'm now active these days on Twitter. Awesome. Well, we have a lot of questions that I ran by you before we went live. And uh, I hope to get to all of them. Also, I'll be watching the, the live chat if there are any Good ones that come up, I'll, if we have time, I'll ask um, Peter at the end. Uh, but the first question we have is from Sean Brown. Um, he is asking, what is your best estimate of the amount of government intervention, taxes, regulations, tariffs, subsidies, monetary policy, immigration restrictions, um, the amount these restrictions and these interventions reduce our standard of living measured in GDP per capita? So it's massive. Uh, the question is how far back you want to go. A logical starting point would be the progressive era, which began around the turn of the century, around 1900, 1910. Uh, before then, we had the so-called Gilded Age in the late 19th century. Really, it was the Golden Age. It was socialist journalists who dubbed it so. And if we compare what happened after the sort of socialist onslaught of progressivism. Okay, if we compare that to, to what the economy looked like before, then over that 100 years, you're talking something like seven times poorer, okay? For perspective, uh, Mexico is about three times poorer than the US, right? To get to a gap of seven X, you're going to maybe like the Philippines or Bolivia, all right? So whatever your quality of life is nowadays, if we hadn't gone down that progressive rabbit hole, uh, roughly we'd be about seven times richer. That would mean that you'd make about a hundred bucks an hour working at Starbucks. People would probably retire in their mid thirties and go, you know, read poems or whatever it is one does. Uh, now, of course, that's just sort of straight line extrapolation uh, because it's a big counterfactual, right? So if, for example, we hadn't had a Federal Reserve uh, that it's very unlikely that World War I would not have happened. Had World War I not happened, World War II, the Soviet empire, right? There's a whole number of things that came out of that process, which fundamentally began with uh, sort of the, the march of government, this enormous growth of government really uh, across the Western world. All right. Well, the next question that we have is from Donnie Letson, uh, and he is asking... Do you see uses for crypto? The biggest is obviously money. Uh, you know, so there I think Bitcoin is really kind of the final word. Money, of course, is a big deal uh, because without fiat currency, government would probably, I mean, it would be a lot smaller than it is today, not just in absolute terms, right? 
probably around half offhand uh, if they couldn't just print the money they need. But again, you've got counterfactuals involved in that. So for example, the COVID lockdowns, right? If say the US government had not been able to print every dollar it needed, it would have never done the COVID lockdowns, right? They would have said, wait, we're gonna have to lay off bureaucrats? Are you kidding? Are you out of your mind? No way we can lock it down, right? Because they would have been starved of tax revenue. So again, you have a lot of counterfactuals where you know getting rid of fiat, I think, is, is probably bigger than half the game. Having said, uh, there are a lot of other crypto applications that I do think are interesting, sort of in our in, in you know research and development sense. You have social media, decentralized finance, file storage, uh, supply chain, uh, uncensored internet browsing, like with Brave. Uh, I think those are great. I'm 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 not against those projects. Um, just like you know, I like tools like Noster or BitTorrent back in the day. Or right? anything decentralized, I love. Uh, however, you know, I think a lot of the hostility against crypto in the Bitcoin community is looking at it as an investment. And there, I would absolutely say, do not put your life savings in these things. I'm glad they're there. Treat them as speculative investment. If you put a dollar into non-Bitcoin crypto, I would say kiss it goodbye. It's probably not coming back. Now, that's related to another question that we got from Anonymous. Um it says, I am young and I have saved up a lot of money, but it is currently sitting in a regular savings account. I want to diversify. Some people suggest bonds. Some suggest indexes. And others are saying to completely jump ship and put it all in Bitcoin, gold, and cash. Can I trust anything? Is it worth still incurring risk and in investing in the stock market? So I do still diversify. Uh, I love Bitcoin. A lot of my net worth is in Bitcoin, but I still do, still do diversify. And the reason is because Bitcoin is extremely volatile and it will remain volatile until it has much wider acceptance. Uh, gold, by the way, right? Gold was stable for many hundreds of years since gold was demonetized. All right. Gold has doubled or dropped in half several times over you know, one or two years. So gold became super volatile, not because gold is inherently volatile, but because it's not money right now. So Bitcoin is in the same boat, but magnified, right? So Bitcoin will remain volatile until it becomes uh, the most common currency. So in the meantime, you do have to diversify. Keep in mind, stocks are real, right? Nike, Apple Corporation, these are real things. They have, you know, they're like little machines that usually make money. They're made of people and locations and brand names. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's fine to, to, to diversify into stocks. You probably want to stay out of bonds or uh, savings accounts just because those are not little machines that make money. Uh, they just erode predictably. Uh, and then, of course, the biggie is uh, borrowing, right? So, you know, one of the ways that the Fed screws with the economy is by subsidizing uh, borrowing rates. And so if you can borrow, you should borrow. All right. Interest rates are almost always too low. Uh, you know, so whether it's uh, real estate, um, even buying a car, whatever you can borrow, if you can get extremely cheap money and you want it to be fixed rate so that you don't have any surprises. Uh, absolutely. That, you know, in my opinion, that would be the first move. The second move would be, you know, put something hard, Bitcoin, gold, whatever you're comfortable with, uh, and then look at stocks. All right. Now, David is wondering whether you think Bitcoin is superior to gold and 
If so, um, do you also think Bitcoin is superior to other cryptocurrencies? I think it is in both cases. Um, what Bitcoin has over gold is that it's unseizable. Uh, so uh, one, one commentator said, Bitcoin has no throat to choke, right? So in the case of gold, gold was seized. There is no country today that bases its money on gold. Why? Because gold is very easy to seize. Uh, it's physical. That means it has to be protected. That means you have a giant building with, you know, moats and armed guards. Government knows how to find that, and it has. So, you know, gold is, uh, in a way, um, uh, controlled opposition. Bitcoin, on the other hand, it cannot be killed. Uh, it, it, you know, gold can't be completely killed. I mean, you know, even if the government, for instance, when the U.S. government banned gold, you could still transact it person to person, but that's very, very limited, right? What, you would have to hire Brinks to take your rent payment to your uh, landlord, right? It won't work. So Bitcoin has the benefit that operationally it's very similar to gold with the benefit that it cannot be seized. And of course, that it can be transmitted over distances, in fact, much cheaper uh, than a Visa card can. In terms of other crypto, I mentioned that earlier. I think they're way too risky right now. They're R&D projects. They're, you know, speculative plays for DGENs. Uh, you know, think of it like going to Atlantic City for the weekend. Any money you take with you will be gone. If it's not gone, you lucked out, but statistically it will be. Now, uh, Spencer is wondering, what do you make of today's FOMC statement by Jerome Powell? So the Fed is doing what it always does, right, which is that it works as hard as it can to create inflation, uh, usually, it doesn't screw up the inflation this bad. It, it printed too much money at once uh, to buy that COVID lockdown. But anyway, so it creates inflation. And then to, to rein in the inflation, it then has to crush the economy, right? So we get this inflation recession cycle. Uh, so the Fed's right in the midst of that. Uh, at this point, I think where they are is, you know, they broke inflation. The goal of any, you know, sort of um, manipulator is to stay out of the newspaper uh, a lot of people are getting angry at the Fed. Fed doesn't need that attention. Uh, so they broke inflation, then they broke the economy, sort of panic broke it to try to control for that. Uh, and at this point, I think they're really a deer in the headlight. So they, you know, the way that they're putting it is, you know, we're sort of calmly pausing to assess data. But another way to put it is you guys have no idea what you're doing. You don't know what's coming next. Uh, I think a lot of people think that probably the next move here is that something in the economy is going to break, whether that's, you know, a top heavy financial uh, system, some piece of that breaking, uh, whether it's the economy actually going into free fall. At that point, the Fed's going to have to lower rates, um, you know, given a choice between crashing the economy and ongoing inflation, they're probably going to go for inflation. It's less painful. There's less political pressure. Uh, so at that point, you know, we could conceivably uh, even go back to uh, inflation together with recession, which would be stagflation. All right. Now we have a Twitter account uh, who is asking a question. So this is at Raystones23. That's R-A-I-S-T-O-N-E-S 23. And he says, please explain a theoretical progression of Bitcoin adoption by masses in the U.S., and world as a global currency. Specify how this progression can avoid being thwarted by governments, the state, which clearly understand that it threatens their existence. Thank you. 
Right. So the, you know, in terms of onboarding, um, that's generally with monies, uh, that's something that sort of happens gradually. Uh, you know, as more people come on, uh, the volatility goes down, the volatility opens it up to, you know, more customers, more, more, more people switching over their assets into that money. And you sort of get this nice uh, iterative uh, process. Now, in the case of Bitcoin, of course, what complicates that is that governments are extremely hostile to it. Uh, they cannot kill it, but they can definitely slow it. Right? And they can do that by targeting the on-ramp, so specifically the uh, financial sector. Uh, thankfully, and I think this is really as libertarians are our sort of most powerful tool, uh, most politicians don't have a backbone. They believe in absolutely nothing. Normally, we find that disappointing, but in this case, it's useful. They really don't care, all right? The, yet, yes, there's this you know, entire financial uh, edifice that benefits the big banks. They spent a lot of time and money buying it, bribing it from politicians, but today's politicians do not care. They will chase whatever they need to do for, to win the next election. So I think the, the, the beauty of it is that, you know, the, the financial interests, the, um, you know, JP Morgan's, the sort of deep state, these people may have a strong opinion about Bitcoin. Politicians, they're just like dogs. I mean, they will chase, you know, wherever you throw the meat, they will chase. Uh, so I do think that there's an opening and that the key there is to bring more people into it, bring more people onto the life raft, get them used to, you know, what is Bitcoin? How do you use it? Uh, what is the Lightning Network? You know, uh, people don't understand how easy uh, it is to use. And as you bring more people over, that begins to influence politicians. I think at this point, something like 16% of young Americans own crypto. That number is increasing every year. Every time the Fed does its screw-ups, that number bumps up a little bit more. At some point, those little puppy dog politicians, they will follow the votes. They don't follow the money. They follow the votes, above all. Without votes... You don't have power. Without power, you can't get any bribes at all. All right. Well, uh, we ha actually have some related questions to that. Um, so Henry Kriegel, who is uh, he works with me. So this is great to see. It's a it's a local question. Um, he is wondering. He, he says that Montana Senator Daniel Zolnikov uh, introduced a bill in the Montana legislature that prohibits di discriminatory digital asset mining utility rates. It also prohibits local government powers related to digital asset mining. Uh, it prohibits taxation on the use of cryptocurrency as a payment method, and it provides for digital assets as personal property. And then Henry asks, do you believe states should implement laws like this? Very strongly. I think that's excellent. Um, it, it, you know, sort of as a general principle, digital assets should be treated just like any other commerce, right? There should be no discrimination. Uh, the government certainly has no expertise in running a business or in understanding what people want. Uh, so absolutely should be treated like anything else. And indeed, commerce should be treated like all of other fundamental rights, whether it's speech or voting. Uh, so, you know, on sort of a moral level, I applaud it. And of course, you know, I think it's addressing a lot of the threats that local and national governments are uh, deploying against digital assets. And, you know, they have sort of this knee-jerk hostility. Uh, I think a lot of that just comes from brainwashing that, you know, people all over the world believe that central banks fight inflation, which is hilarious. <laughs> you know, if you look at how central banks are created, banks create them to create inflation. 
so either the banks are astoundingly stupid or they're not what they seem to be. Uh, but, you know, taxing digital assets as a payment method, uh, you know, that's something that um, a lot of jurisdictions are doing now. The idea would be that uh, if you buy Bitcoin and then it goes up a bunch and then you go and, you know, buy dinner with it, then you have to pay tax on the difference. Right now, of course, that's discriminatory in the sense that, you know, when you go to Mexico and you change out your dollars to pesos, you know, you don't have to do a return to the IRS every single time you buy dinner to show whether the peso appreciation has occurred. Uh, for that matter, when you, you know, if you get paid on Monday and you go out for dinner Friday, the U.S. dollar did fluctuate in purchasing power. Uh, usually it got worse, but every so often uh, you get deflation. So, you know, you don't have to fill out a form for that. And of course, the reason you don't have to fill out a form for that is because it would be absurdly intrusive, right? Every single time you used a dollar, you would have to go and reference the CPI for the day you received the dollar. So digital assets should be treated exactly the same as paper confetti that governments print. And, you know, uh, the most logical way to do it is, you know, exactly uh, what's in the bill, which is to treat digital assets as personal property, like your clothes. They are things that belong to you. If you buy and sell them, that, again, that's not something that's uh, normally reported on your taxes. I'll kind of add to this question a little bit because, uh, it specifically talks this this bill um, based off of Henry's question here. Um, it's talking about prohibiting localities from discriminatory digital asset mining utility rates. Uh, and I think what this is related mm -hmm. to is um, the city of Missoula passed one of the most, I think it was actually the first of its kind um, in, in Montana, where where they were actually punishing cryptocurrency mining because of yeah. climate change fears. Right. Uh, so, so I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little. Yeah, it's part of a larger effort where uh, I think the end game on that is to basically uh, install a permissioned economy where you have to ask permission to do anything you want to do. Right. So, you know, I want to eat this. I want to go to this country. I want to you know, do this with my life. You have to get permission. And sort of for me, one of the poster children is. Um, how they treat, you know, spontaneous street protests uh, versus how they might treat, say, tailgating at a football game. So if you look that up on the Internet, you look at carbon footprint of tailgating. They're like on this jihad against tailgating. They can't stand tailgating. My God, you've got people driving and sitting around in the open barbecuing. Right. This is just horrific to them. And, it, it, you know, but then on the other hand, if you have like an open air orgy, uh, you know, in San Francisco, this is uh, brave and stunning. And so what accounts for this difference? Why does one of them have a carbon footprint? The other one magically has none. I think that's really what it's getting at, that everything they don't like uh, is going to be subject to this carbon footprint rule. And anything they like is, you know, has sufficient uh, sociological value that, you know, we're just going to set that aside and forget that the carbon footprints exist. You know, another example is the private planes they take to Davos to go plot out uh, their uh, CO2 regime. And again, those absolute pass silence like it never happened because it's for a good cause. So in this case, somehow cryptocurrencies got on their uh, bad list. Uh, which, I mean, to me is kind of surprising, like, you know, crypto or Bitcoin is not inherently right wing. It's, it's very much a little guy against, you know, the banks. I mean, it's very much in the spirit of the um, Occupy Wall Street movement uh, 15 years ago. So uh, I don't know why the sort of NPC 
followers are, are accepting that framing. But at any rate, uh, Bitcoin is on the bad list. And so therefore, it magically has a carbon footprint. All right. Well, thank you for that. And um, now moving on, Michael Crump is asking, how do we as a group for Austrian economic enthusiasts get Bitcoin adopted like gold and silver were, were adopted before paper money started circulating heavily? Uh, taking the notion of fiat and paper money out of the e equation, including CBD CBDCs. Thank you. Yeah, it's tricky. Um, historically, you know, once you reintroduce gold or silver, that typically happens uh, after some kind of crisis, right? So they really screw up fiat. Uh, people are desperate. They, they, they need something to hold on to. And then typically that's how you get back to gold or silver. So we would like to get to Bitcoin without having some cataclysmic crisis. crisis. Uh, and there, you know, I mentioned earlier, um, you know, the volatility will gradually decline. Uh, as more people come on, each boom bust cycle also brings on a lot more people. Those people automatically reduce the volatility again, at which point, you know, Bitcoin can start uh, being useful for, say, regular, uh, I don't know, saving or checking accounts, right? Checking accounts are usually pretty small. And then gradually, as the volatility gets better, it's good for savings. So, okay, you have this kind of gradual process, but you would like to accelerate that, right? So, um, you know, one way to do that is uh, regulatory. Uh, so, you know, um, lobbying locally, getting involved in politics, uh, things like um, what Bukele did in El Salvador, right, uh, making Bitcoin dual legal tender. Uh, I think those are excellent. They sort of show the path for other countries. They show that you can do that and, you know, the world's not going to collapse. Uh, so sort of leading by example and... You know, one of the benefits in the U.S. is that we do have a federal system. Uh, even at local level, you have quite a bit of power. Uh, and so to the extent that you can push those, you know, for example, you were mentioning with the Montana bill, uh, I think that's very helpful. And then other states can follow the lead and you can start to get kind of a model uh, legislation for other states, but also other countries to follow. All right. And then uh, Spencer is asking, Besides centralized and government control, what is the difference between regular cryptocurrencies and CBDCs? Are there any other issues with CBDCs that don't just relate to the fact that they are centralized and controlled by government? There are a huge number of issues. Uh, generally, they come from the fact that they're centralized and government issued. Uh, but to illustrate the structure of a CBDC it, even if it's introduced initially with the banks dealt in on the, you know, getting their cut, the sort of logic of the system is why the heck do you need banks, right? Like, you know, if you're holding your money in a CBDC, why don't you just hold your money directly at the Federal Reserve? Why on earth would you need a bank? And so it, it starts to resemble a little bit the uh, public option during Obamacare, where you had kind of this government version of it that would chase out the private sector. So on the one hand, you know, if banks uh, collapse, uh, <laughs> that's not altogether a bad thing. Uh, on the other hand, what does that leave you with? Well, it leaves you with money, you know, people's savings accounts, which is something like 10 or 12 trillion dollars. That would be deposited effectively with the government. And then the government would therefore, by necessity, have to decide how to loan that money out. And we already have very good indications of how would they would they would loan that money out. 
in the you know crony and ESG uh, racket that they fund today. So I think that's really kind of an unrecognized risk is that it would essentially transform the U.S. financial system, at least the commercial banking system, which is most of the money, it would transform that into almost a Soviet-style Gosplan, where you had this sort of state agency that would decide how to allocate uh, capital for, for businesses. And that, that, I think, is an enormous danger. Uh, one of the things I, I you know, spend my days on is trying to wake banks up to realize this. Uh, the banks have been asleep at the wheel basically tell them, look, you guys have bought a very nice racket for yourself. Don't screw it up. Well, I, I guess this is along the same lines. Um, and, and I'm going to add to it a little bit. Uh, an anonymous person is asking, how badly did the Federal Reserve mess up this time? What tangible things can we point to to say the Federal Reserve screwed up and will not have a soft landing and yeah, ju just um, I, I know you've written about this. Uh, you, you have a Substack article about how how bad the recession will be. So I'm wondering if you can um, just des describe that article and, and make the argument for, uh, I guess, like what's the time frame and, and everything like that? Are, are we going to be in a depression? And I guess a lot of that would depend on how the government responds. But um, yeah, what are your insights there? Yeah, I think sort of the opening bid is the 1970s. Uh, I don't think the opening bid is the 1930s. Um, the 30s were very unique because uh, the um, both the Hoover and the FDR administrations were extraordinarily interventionist, uh, even much more than um, than today's government is uh, in where it mattered, which was wages. Uh, so I don't think that we're going to look at a at a 1930s situation. However. Um, even if we're looking at 1970s, there's a huge additional risk compared to the 70s, which is that we have one heck of a lot more debt uh, than we did back then, right? So debt as a proportion of the economy, debt in absolute terms is, is uh, astronomical compared to back then. Uh, our debt is actually even substantially larger than it was in 2008. I believe it was more than three times larger uh, than it was in 2008. And compared to the 70s, it was, it was, it was many times larger. And so the risk there is that, you know, our financial system in the 70s was nowhere near as leveraged as it is today, right? We had just come off gold very recently. It was a big reason why the 70s happened. Uh, and so banks sort of hadn't uh, gone long enough to really get comfortable in their new, you know, bailout proof world. Uh, at this point, we've had, right? We've had 50 years of it. Uh, and so I think that what a lot of people are concerned about is that something is going to break in the system. Of course, that's not just the U.S. I mean, essentially every uh, industrial uh, country in the world is massively uh, over leveraged. Uh, the EU, Japan, China, essentially everybody is massively leveraged. And the concern is that if one thing starts toppling, then others could fall behind it. And it's important to remember that, you know, what happened in 2008, so that was uh, mortgage-backed securities and collateralized debt obligations. Before the crisis occurred, nobody on Wall Street had ever heard of those. All right. If you watch the movie, The Big Short, talking about uh, Burry, the guy who predicted it all, he was trying to buy these things. And everybody on Wall Street was like, what is that? I don't know what that is. And they were kind of spitballing in the back room like, hey, how much should I charge this guy? I don't know. Charge him a lot. Ha ha. All right. These guys had no idea it was there. All right. So in other words, and, and that's what destroyed the world. <laughs> right. So. The question is, 
if you had that gremlin sitting in the machine that even the experts at Wall Street did not know existed, all right, how many of those do we have this time? Nobody knows where they are. The Fed certainly doesn't know where things are. If even Wall Street doesn't know, guarantee you nobody knows. There's probably one or you know two Michael Burries in the world who knows what's going to blow up next. Uh, so that's my biggest concern is that we start with the 1970s. Uh, it's really worldwide this time. And then that causes something to break that gives you a uh, domino effect. Now, I'm, I'm going to add a question. I didn't send this to you, but uh, you, you did br bring up Michael Burry. Um, I, I wonder if you saw his tweet from the other day and, and I wonder how you reacted to that. He he sent out um, just one word, sell, period. And, and it was trending on Twitter. Uh, so if you didn't see that, I, I just wonder what, what you make of that, because it, it caused quite a stir. Uh, I love him in many ways, but his record on predicting uh, asset movements has been poor. Uh, so, you know, an A for presentation, but honestly, I don't put any weight in his opinions. I don't know. It's like uh, Peter Schiff, right? There are guys out there who are perma bears. Uh, it's kind of their brand. It's their thing. The sky is always falling. Uh, and then when they get lucky, the sky falls, then, you know, they kind of run off that the rest of their career. So I listened to him, but for something like that, I wouldn't take it too seriously. It's pretty funny. I think that was the only tweet on his feed and then he del deleted it like a, a day later. So it was pretty <laughs> dramatic. This, this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, um, so we're going to start wrapping up after a couple more questions. If anyone watching now wants to submit some questions just in the comments, please do. And, and we'll get to them. Uh, but we'll, we'll try to wrap up with some of the ones that were submitted. Uh, so Fernando M. D'Andrea, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He's asking, what are good schools to go to to learn and apply Austrian economics, especially at the graduate level? Yeah, so I went to George Mason specifically because uh, it has so many Austrians on faculty. Um, so that's outside of Washington, D.C. It's a relatively cheap school. It's a state school. Uh, I didn't regret it. Um, there are a lot more undergraduate programs. Um, Hillsdale, for example, Grove City College. Uh, King Juan Carlos in Spain has at least one uh, prominent Austrian but I think if you want to study Austrian economics and you don't necessarily want to go to one of those, generally, you know, you can look at the faculty of, of other universities that you want to go by or others that are nearby you. Uh, there's often one or two Austrians on the faculty, you know, so places like uh, Florida State, uh, University of Southern Florida. Uh, a lot of these, they will have an Austrian or an Austro-friendly person on staff. Uh, and just reach out to them, right? Email them, do a phone call, go and visit them. Uh, professors respond very, very well to personal visits. It's so rare that they will conclude that you're passionate on the subject and they will try to help you. And remember that when you're going into a, a say, a graduate program, you really only care about one person, which is your advisor, all right? You need one professor. That professor is going to get you through. They're going to protect you and shelter you from the storm. Even if everybody else in the entire university hates you because you're a crazy Austrian, you just need one person and then they're going to take you through the process. So always keep that in mind. It also means, you know, choose by advisor. Do not choose by program, not not for your grad school and not if you're going for love. Uh, in other words, if you're going because it's Austrian economics, don't choose based on the school rank and things like that. Choose based on the advisor. 
Uh, someone commented, Mises U. Uh, it's not a graduate program, but I highly recommend this as well. If, if anyone is um, in their undergrad degree right now and wants to learn Austrian economics, there's a week-long program uh, during the summer in Auburn, Alabama. And I actually, I've, I graduated from it twice and I have this book right here. Um, they, they give it to you and it's like just uh, they, they have excerpts of all of these Austrian works. So you, you get to read some uh, of Mises, some of, I think Rothbard might be in here. Yeah. What has government done uh, to, to money? I think is in here to our money. Um, I highly recommend that. Uh, and then we, we do have some questions trickling in. Uh, so Dave is asking, I read about experiments with local currencies in a slightly older book. Does that idea have any life these days? It is done sometimes. Uh, it's usually basically a gimmick uh, to attract tourists. Uh, Miami was farting around with, I can't remember the name of it, but some local coin, Miami coin or something. Uh, I think Martha's Vineyard or Cape Cod, places like that, they'll do kind of regional currencies, Key West. Uh, generally, it's a gimmick. It doesn't really have legs. And the reason is... Um, you know, generally because you can't actually convert it into anything, right? So typically what floats those schemes is that you get a discount, right? So local businesses say that they'll accept the whatever Key West coin at face value and you can buy them from the tourist office at 5% off or they're generally structured this way. So those are pretty gimmicky. Um, now, of course, you know, Bitcoin, on the other hand, I think is different in the sense that you can't exchange it for something physical, uh, what you're really buying with Bitcoin is access to a specific network. And in fact, that's also what you're buying with the U.S. dollar, right? So if you come into the U.S. and you're trying to use uh, Bolivian pesos, um, you know, you're going to incur transaction costs and 7-Eleven is going to resist them. Uh, so what you're really buying, if you're Bolivian and you visit the U.S. and you buy U.S. tokens, you're not saying that you love U.S. tokens. You're saying that I want access to a network called the United States. And so Bitcoin, I'd argue, is uh, effectively the same thing. It's, it's, it's a network coin, uh, and that is giving you access to a network that, in this case, I think is a superior gold. All right. And then it looks like someone is saying that Mises U offers a master's degree program now. I, I did know that, and I neglected to mention it. Uh, so, yeah, I, 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 well. I recently learned that. Yes, that is correct. So uh, massively endorse uh the Mises Institute, uh, in any chance you get to go over there, there's a lot of really clear minds over there. It's an excellent organization. Yeah. And then uh, just to wrap up with a final question, this is actually a holdover from previous ones that we've done, but I, I think it's it's just good to, to get this question asked by everyone. Um, what are some non-Austrian books that uh, you would recommend reading? Um, is there anyone that, that you, and I guess like while we're at it, another person has asked what, what is the best Austrian book to read? So if you have one Austrian book to recommend, um, what is it? And then a non-Austrian one as well. Uh, okay. Austrian book is easy. That's man economy and state by Rothbard. Uh, the content is similar to human action, but I think Rothbard is more readable. Uh, so I would recommend uh, starting with that. If you want to understand the Fed, again, I would stick with Rothbard, The Case Against the Fed, extremely readable. Uh, Ron Paul's book was, I think, basically structured on that. Uh, that is sort of the Bible. Um, all right. And you can tell I'm a huge fan of Rothbard. 
So pretty much anything Rothbard has ever written is, uh, is amazing. Uh, in terms of non-Austrian books, most of what I read is Austrian, of course. The Forgotten Depression, I don't know that he identifies an Austrian, but that, that's uh, probably going to be quite interesting. He's talking about the 1920 uh, Depression, which the presidents at the time, the Depression happened over two presidencies, and both presidents were, for different reasons, uh, neglecting the economy. They were either sick or they were lame ducks or they just weren't into it. Uh, so that was Wilson and uh, Harding, and they did nothing. And the economy snapped right back. Like, you know, they had this real rough patch for 18 months and then just came back like gang. I mean, it just went crazy. We had an entire decade, uh, the most electric decade of the century, the roaring 20s. So that's pretty fascinating because I think that we're coming into uh, that kind of episode here. If the economy does go into, you know, a serious recession, then they're going to dust off the old playbook. They're going to cut rates. They're going to uh, increase government spending. And I think that book really nicely illustrates that both of those actually make the problem worse. They stretch out the pain and they mean that the pain is never entirely fixed. You've just sort of patched it over and, you know, um, your, your car was falling apart. So instead of fixing it, you just kind of paint over it and then you pump that sucker up to 80 miles an hour again. You're going to crash again. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on with us today. Um, why don't you just tell people where they can find you on social media and uh, elsewhere? I've also linked to, I believe, your Twitter, um, your Substack, and your Mises profile in the description. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I'm at Heritage. Uh, that's why I write a lot of my work. Uh, we've got some great economists over there. I'm also active on Twitter at Prof Stange, P-R-O-F-S-T-O-N-G-E. And then my Substack links out of there. Uh, so that's, that's pretty much how you can find me. Awesome. Well, and to everyone listening, um, go over to askanaustrian.com. Uh, please submit questions for future episodes. If you enjoyed this, uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. I believe we're also on Odyssey um, and then all the, the podcatchers. Um, we're going to be upgrading this and also changing the look of it, uh, maybe even the name here in the future. Um, but definitely stay tuned to for that and then subscribe to us on YouTube uh, specifically because that is the hub for all of our stuff. Um, if, if we have speeches at, at events, they're going to be there. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoy it. And then also uh, just make sure you, you subscribe and, and keep submitting questions. We're going to um, be watching the, the private chat and, and the live chat when, when the podcasts are streaming and I'll keep track of them. And we do have a long list of ones that haven't, haven't been addressed yet, but uh, we, we need more um, and we're going to keep inviting guests on and we're, we're very excited for where we're headed, but um, I appreciate you joining us today, Peter. It was a pleasure, Liam. Really enjoyed it. <laughs>